Alex, thanks for joining me. Uh, I've got loads of questions that I'd like to ask you about farming and food production. Um, also, I'm interested to find out about your own health journey and how an ancestral approach to diet and lifestyle, which is, I believe, how you've described it, how that's helped you and, um, yeah, what, what positive impact it's had for you. Yeah, well, thanks, Imran. Yeah, and it's great to be on and having chats about these things, which I'm really interested in. My, my story of getting to where I am today, I had years, probably, you know, the vast majority of my life up until only a few years ago where I had all kinds of health issues, um, started with all these skin issues um, and gut issues and it, I kind of went down the rabbit hole, like nothing was working, what the doctors were telling me, and, um, you know, using creams and, and not really looking at nutrition or health at all. And it took me to realize I had some food intolerances and kind of took me down the rabbit hole to where I am now. And it took a while. It took a lot of learning. Um, but realized things like my own, you know, I suffered for, from depression for a while, low energy, low mood, um, anemia, so low, low iron. And as I changed things, mainly with what I was eating, I realized that everything I was eating was having an effect, whether that was a good one or a bad one. So, yeah, what I did realize is you can make big changes once it was about healing and letting your body heal and not, you know, using your own experience rather than just listening to to what you get told is right. And yeah, it took me to a position where the last year or so and about a year ago where I was really just felt like a thriving for the first time possibly ever and you know opened up energies and and you know lack of low moods good moods um, that I that I'd not experienced before so yeah I started coaching people and, and helping them to, to do the same um, so that's kind of that's kind of me on on the health side. So when when did these issues start out? Did they go back as far as you can remember, or was it perhaps a, a trigger? Yeah, I remember having them. You know, when I was at primary school, I remember like things like having um, boils that would open up. Sometimes I remember getting lanced in the doctors. I like, was one day my foot swelled up um and so that was years ago um and that carried on for a while um same with my gut i oh and skin issues it was a, a type of eczema really bad on my hands and that um was happening when i was really young and i actually did get I'm laughing now, but I, I got arth—I had arthritis in my hands and feet as a really young boy, and I didn't know what it was then. But 
I'm laughing because um, like part of the bone in your in your foot would would swell up and stick out for me, and I got told that the best thing to do was smack it with a big book because like just to get just to get it get it down. Um, so yeah, I never put all of these things together, but it's you know now looking back, I realise it's all to do with predominantly what I was eating. So what were the first things that you noticed that were having a positive or, or negative effect? I cut out gluten and that was that was a big thing. That was probably getting on that was about eleven years ago and you know I saw that these skin issues and gut issues it was actually a trip. I went I went uh, away to uh, travelling around Vietnam. Uh, Cambodia for a summer and I came back and for the first time ever all these skin issues had gone and I came back and just started eating normal uh, student foods and my I was literally sat on the toilet for the next two weeks all day every day and I was like what is going on so then I put two and two together I'd just been eating rice where before you know I've been eating bread and pasta most days so that, yeah, that was the that was the kind of awakening with gluten, but it was a very long and slow road that took me into other things like vegetable oils, other grains, um, foods like um, you know we talk about the FODMAP foods, so things like garlic and onions, and it took me you know further and further down to to work out. But there was there was a few things, not just gluten. Mm. So what does your diet look like now? Well, I mean, it's taken years of experimenting, and and particularly the last couple, going very, um, kind of being very careful and watchful of what I do. And at the moment, probably the last year, I am pretty much carnivore so I eat a lot of red meat and not that much in terms of vegetables um, or, or other things I I have experimented with fruit and you know I don't eat like a monk now because I think you know all day every day just meat I, that I do think that seems to work for me the best but I do think, you know, you should enjoy yourself and take occasions as they come. Um, but what I was going to say about sugar or fruit is, and that some people do eat fruit as well and do well with it, but I would say that myself and, and everyone's different. I, I kind of was having fruit and meat and, yeah, it was very soon just... Become, became a bit of an addiction to me so I because of the fructose and glucose and from what I've learned like sugar which fructose is can be as addictive as things like cocaine and, and other drugs so you know it's very individual but yeah I am predominantly meat-based uh, at the moment. Yeah I've been through lots of variations of mostly carnivore diets where I've added other things in, maybe some dairy, some fruit. Um, 
I think when I first did it, the mistake I made was I went quite lean, quite lean carnivore, which I say that was a mistake, a mistake for me. Um, and I felt like I was still craving some sugar. I don't, generally don't have particular, uh, very many sweet cravings. But when I went onto this low-fat carnivore diet, I did feel like I wanted sugar. I wanted to eat fruit and I, I was thirsty. And just the idea of a, a juicy piece of fruit, like a grapefruit or something like that, yeah. was um, you know really appealing. I think the main mistake I was making was not enough fat. Um, and that high protein was probably causing the increased thirst. And maybe I just needed a little more readily available energy from sugar um, because there wasn't enough energy coming from fat. Um, you'd be relying on converting some of that protein to energy, which is not that efficient. Um, yeah, so I, I just tried to stick to it for a while and thought maybe you know the this uh, taste or craving for some fruit will go away. It didn't really. So I was, okay, I'll, I'll add some fruit in. And I started with I'll have one piece of fruit a day plus plus my meat. That turned into two pieces of fruit per day. Then it's three and. Like you say, it, it is, for me, it's highly addictive as well. And it just went up and up and up and up until I just wanted to eat sugar all the time. But um, eventually when I figured, figured that out and went for a, a much higher fat, um, more carnivore style diet, yeah, that, that sort of taste for something sweet went away completely. And I'll, I'll still eat some fruit from time to time, um, but it's not so much of a, a craving that's there all the time. I want to go back to something that you said a minute ago, actually, about um, the first time you noticed some sort of remission from these symptoms was actually when you were on holiday. Um, when I first started having issues with what seemed like food intolerance, everything you can imagine, I was trying to figure it out. I was doing food diaries for months, trying to match how I felt with what I was eating. wasn't getting anywhere, so I think it was after about seven or eight months I, I gave up. And it was Christmas holidays and I was spending some time with my family. I thought, I'm just going to relax for two weeks. I had the whole two weeks off work. I'm going to eat whatever I want. And during that time, I had zero, as far as I can remember, zero digestive issues, eating whatever I wanted. What's going on here? And I kind of spoke to some other people about it. And what it came to is it, stress is a huge factor as well. Um, while I was working, I was working really hard at that point, training quite hard. And when I took those two factors out, all of a sudden I could eat pretty much what I wanted. So do you think there's other, other factors other than just diet? Have you experienced anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that I focus on first with the people I'm coaching. Like you said, stress, cortisol, spikes, like, you know, small amounts is 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 good and you know can help you be productive and whatever but in the modern world it can be very easy to be overrun like throughout the day with that and yeah you, you bang on if if your body's highly stressed then you know you're in fight or flight and your body's not concentrating on digesting and resting and all the good that comes with that and yeah, I was just looking at something the other day, um, this doctor who was talking about his client who first month, and I've seen this myself, the first month, the person he was helping wasn't losing any weight and they were massively o obese and he had them on a, what he thought was a, a good plan. 
it was only when he addressed what um, what was making them stressed um, and they put time into the person's plan to really focus on themselves, what they enjoy, particularly when they wake up, woke up. Um, and before they went to bed, things like having a bath and, you know, just shutting off or reading a book like the, that they enjoyed and which is easier said than done, but, but they managed this. And then I think the first month, this person lost three pounds. Um, the next month they went up to six, the next month they went up to 10 and it just kept building because, you know, like you said, their, their body wasn't in such a frenzied state. Yeah, I think that was my experience at the time. I was working in a gym, so starting early, finishing late, squeezing meals in in between sessions and my own training sessions. So, you know, hardly any time to digest food properly. It, it's kind of obvious, really, looking back. Um, yeah, so with your diet now, mainly meat-based um, and the work that you do, uh, that seems like that's a, a good marriage of being in the right place to be able to access good quality food. Um, we had this discussion about this when we first spoke. Uh, if you're eating a mainly meat-based carnivore-type diet, can you do that well through supermarket food, do you think? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I also work as a consultant for farmers to help them, you know, it's kind of difficult times at the moment and, you know, we can, we can expand on that, helping them to, to improve their practices and, and bring in more profits, um, you know, to help with their survival. Now, supermarket foods, I think they often get a bad name for things like beef and lamb. But these are actually coming from, you know, if these are often British, um, but regardless, really, if they're coming from what the what the cattle and the sheep are doing is most of their time they will be eating grass anyway. They're not in the UK battery farms like you know these massive operations you get elsewhere. So for a lot of the time, and sometimes you know the whole life, they are eating a diet of what they are designed for. You know, mainly grass. Um, they often do get fattened on things like wheat but and i'll make the i'll kind of get onto the, the difference to other animals their digestive systems as ruminants means that you know they fer, fer, use fermentation and that can break down things like wheat um, as well as grass um, unlike other animals so yeah, you can get good quality meat still from the supermarkets. Where I would draw the line and say it's a lower quality is particularly chicken and pork. And that again is coming from what they eat. And, you know, people like Michael Pollan, I think, said, um, you, it's not you are what you eat, it's you are what you eat, ate. And, Chickens and porks, they are really in big factory systems the majority of the time, um, largely housed. 
and they are eating a mix of things that their body's not necessarily designed for. So wherever, whether that's soy blends with wheat and corn, maize. So I do think that does put a lot of stress on the animal and people, and I think also ethically, that is an important point. But uh, they're not as healthy as, say, the beef and sheep. Um, and you know you can also talk about things like linoleic acid which builds up which is like omega-6 comes from the foods that they're eating so um, you know that is higher in those meats and also eggs that aren't raised you know in a good quality way yeah I think it's probably also reflected in the price um if you can buy a whole chicken for three pounds or a giant joint of pork for five, um, that for me raises a few suspicions. Um, it, it implies that probably that food has been, you know, mass produced, factory farmed and can't be of the highest quality. So there's the ethical side of that, of that you know, do you want to support that? But also yeah. the impact well, on your own health. No, you're right. You're right. I mean, that cost is coming out somewhere just because you don't see it doesn't mean, you know, it's going to affect something else, which might be the animal's life. It might be excess pollution, um, you know, all kinds of things. Interestingly, I saw recently, I heard recently that the biggest uh, producer of pork, a big factory, was going to be in Doncaster. And actually, there's not going to be any animals that were brought up in England going through that and being processed. They're all coming from Denmark, which uh, has you know very cheap pork, and I think a lot of that's down to the welfare. Um, but yeah, it's you know kind of where. You know, people are wanting cheap meat, and I get that, especially, you know, with with inflation and all that. And it is difficult, but um, yeah, the cheaper something is, definitely the the lower quality it is. Um, yeah. I will say another I'd, reason. I'd push back on that a little. Is that, uh, not not against you personally, but um, the percentage of people's income that we spend on food compared to previous decades. Is, is lower every decade. Because... Yeah, I love this. I love this, by the way. Mm. It's, um, I, and I completely agree. Uh, I think back, was it, I don't know the stats now, maybe 50 years ago, people spent 25% of their income on food. And now it's about 9 or 10%. And, mm. you know, this is where we've got to take a step back and think, what are my priorities? Because, you know, we're in this crazy consumerist world where you can easily get caught up in, you know, buying all these electronic goods, Netflix, deliveries, um, you know, the list goes on. And we didn't, we just didn't have those same costs back, you know, 50, 100, however many years ago. So, yeah, that would be mm. that would kind of be my 
I completely agree with you. Just if your health, you know, if you're having some health issues or you feel tired and at the same time you're struggling to eat, uh, to buy good food, because that's another thing that pisses me off is that all the cheapest food is the worst food for you. So it's easy to get in that trap. But mm. yeah, that's what I would say to anyone is see how you can streamline your life. You might be surprised at those costs that are coming out that aren't actually giving you that much happiness. Uh, and yeah, maybe then you can start spending more on better quality food. Yeah, agreed. It's about resources isn't it? and priorities. Sorry. So if you have, uh, yeah, it's about priorities. If you've got limited resources, as most people do, most people are on some kind of fixed sort of salary, but you want to have three holidays a year. Um, you've got the latest German high performance car, <laughs> you've got the latest phone. Um, you spend, I don't know, 50 pounds going out, drinking alcohol, drinking cocktails, whatever. But then you complain that meat's gone up by 50 pence. <laughs> yeah. you know, you've just got to decide, really, what what is your higher priority, highest priority? Is it your health or is it all of these other things? That's a choice yeah, you've got right. to make. Yeah, and I think the key thing is, do I need this or do I just want it? Mm. Yeah, but I guess when people you know look around and... They see that this is the norm to change your car regularly and have, you know, have all these material things and that's what all their peers are doing. Yeah, then uh, a small increase in the price of food to them seems uh, like a relatively large amount. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And, and I think it goes back to, uh, as well, so many people don't really see the, the connection immediately between the quality of what they eat Um to my mind, I'm, I'm buying the most high quality food I can afford. That's that's my number one priority. Um, you know, I'm not skimping on buying food because I can see the benefit of it. But if that hasn't really clicked for you yet, then it's just an expense uh, that you try and minimise. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, you know, and I've been there, and it's so difficult because often when you have health issues your and also if you're working long long hours and whatever your your energy is not there so you're more likely and it, it goes the same with drinking and, and all that if the next day and the day or or when you get back from work if if your energy is not there then you you know it's more difficult to get yourself to cook something um, and it's more easy to to see the adverts for McDonald's on TV and think, oh yeah, go on, I'll, I'll get that. But then the tragic thing about this is it's like a, it's a vicious cycle, like, because you, you have these, uh, you know, you fall for your impulses and you might enjoy it for a little bit, but then you feel worse afterwards. You feel more tired, you, you're bloated, you've got no energy. Um, and it just goes round and round in circles and you can get progressively worse. Yeah, I think when you're coaching people, uh, I think your experience is probably similar. Uh, finding that first foothold for somebody is, is the most important thing. Maybe it's they just have some more protein for their breakfast or 
maybe they start going to bed earlier and just get their sleep in order. But yeah, people need to find one win, um, which yeah. they can build on. Uh, and that's going to give them the motivation to then start trying other things. But it could be different for everyone that you're, you're coaching, really. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And well, I got two little points there. Like, I uh, I quit drinking, and at first it was very hard. Like, to thinking, how am I going to socialise? And you know, I've not done this before. Um, but after getting over that first, breaking that cycle once, I was then realised, you know, that that was all right. That was easier than I thought, and. You know, I felt better the next day, but I then had that in in my bag, that experience to, um, like I've I've been there and done it before, so the next time it was a bit easier. And the point there is, people, you know, it, it's easy to sleep through, sleepwalk through life, and just go on impulse and and, you know, not not take a step back and think, is this actually benefiting me? Um, so yeah, if you can start having those little wins, whether, you know, whether that's going for a walk instead of sitting down to watch TV after a meal, um, you know, start small and build it up and you can build the experience and yeah, very soon you can, you can really transform things. Hmm. So we started talking for a moment about, um, the work that you do with farmers and you're helping them with how they, uh, I guess, structure their business and find uh, different opportunities. So what sort of challenges are they having? Good question. And I would say a lot. We're getting back to a bit we were talking about earlier was saying about, you know, you should be spending money. If, if food goes up in price, then, you know, you should maybe be prioritising that. Well, one thing that really frustrates me is supermarkets which i think are a big problem they for example prices of eggs went up in in england probably was it about six months ago now maybe a bit more maybe a year and it kind of stayed up and quite soon we found that you know a lack of eggs on the shelves and you know the supermarkets were calling this inflation but what the reality was is the they weren't they were putting their prices up but they weren't paying the farmer any more money so because their costs as the farmers had gone up for things like you know your energy your food they then soon were weren't economical make like producing eggs for the supermarkets so that was the real reason that eggs weren't on the shelves and I've seen a report recently where I'll see if I can find it for you uh, after we get off. But there was a research institute that's recently done. It was about this time last year, actually. They did some research into where the profits go for supermarket food. So they looked at a number of different things. One was a four pack of beef burgers. So what they concluded is the amount of profit and then so splitting up the profit you you have the farmer you have the processors logistics and you have the supermarket 
and kind of other middle people. What they found was the farmer for this four pack of beef burgers was only getting 0.5 pence per four pack. And they are taking all the risk. Um, and they're just getting completely bullied by this abuse of power. So the supermarkets, they were making, it was about 40 times that in relation to their costs. So, yeah, the massive issue, I think, which doesn't really get spoken about, is the really low margins that farmers are facing. So... What sort of solutions do you recommend for them? Is it a case of going direct to consumers or what kind of things are they thinking about? Yeah, yeah, because if you're selling to a supermarket or you're selling direct at a farmer's market, like a like an auction, then that is, you are, you're being played really because if you're selling at a market, then you know, like a live animal, you depends who turns up on the day, but it's also a commodity product. So I think it's key to try and add value to your products. Now, this is another, this is probably one of the biggest issues I think is going again, which doesn't, doesn't get talked about. The fact that the number of small abattoirs is massively it's been decimated um, and it means that farmers are struggling to be able to sell to get their own animals slaughtered and butchered to sell direct to customers so i saw some stats the other day just to give you a bit of context on that so you know this is what farmers have been doing for hundreds of years but in 1970 there was 1350 abattoirs in the UK. Now, in 2000, that had gone down to 300 and something. Again, 20, year, 20 years after that, in 2020, the number was 135. Now, why this is such an issue is when previously farmers, you know, they pro as and when, especially the smaller farms, as and when they had animals ready, they could literally walk their animals to these small abattoirs to get them butchered and then to sell on in the local community. But what's happened now is because predominantly it's, predominantly it's just the big players in terms of abattoirs who are have survived, are surviving. Like, they... Well, firstly, the small farmer might have to travel like 100 miles just to get a few animals processed, which just makes it, like wipes out the profit margins. Um, and also is the fact that these big abattoirs, they might not just not be bothered about these small orders. So um, they're over, over demanded at the moment. Mm, so what sort of solutions... Do they have to this? What can what can they do to change this? It's a difficult one because, well, I mean, something I'm looking 
I'm currently developing is a network which links the farmers to the end customer um, and kind of sorts that out for them. So whether that's them getting getting together in groups and being able to then go to the abattoirs or, or setting new ones up and having cooperatives, it's a difficult, it's, it is difficult. Um, what I would say is, how do we get around this? Well, one one way of doing it is for the customers to, you know, to vote with your pocketbook, as they say, and, and do buy from these local farm shops or farmers you know, if you go to farmers markets, give them and, you know, give them a reason to carry on and keep making a profit because this will only get worse if it is left as it currently is. So what, what are the economics of that like? So um, my experience of going to farmers markets uh, or looking at some of the farms that seem to sell direct consumers online is that a lot of the food costs quite a bit more than in the supermarket. So, um, you're going to have to be quite motivated to spend that extra money. Um, if that, what puzzles me is if they've taken out the middleman of the supermarket, why is the cost actually higher? It's a lot. Or a the lot price of to down, consumer actually higher. Yeah, a lot of it's down to economies of scale. So, like I said, these mm. these people that really do want to sell to customers, they might have to travel a lot further, which you know adds on all their fuel costs. Um, and also things like if you've only got a few animals that you want slaughtered and butchered, then you just don't get, you, you just have higher cost per animal. It's as simple as that really. And then you've got, often you've got all the costs of packaging, delivery, processing um, yourself. Whereas, you know, these big players can just do it more in a, you know, a, a factory production process, which, you know, it's just, it's a lot of it is just down to the economies of scale. Mm, that makes sense. My first thought was, I guess, a, a group of consumers can band together, like say, for example, uh, I run a gym, we could have a, a meat delivery amongst members um, that might, might sort of help with that economy of scale to some extent. But then immediately, immediately um, in my mind, thought, well, what about the old-fashioned concept of a butcher on the high street? Um, how do they play into this? Because there seem to be fewer butchers than there were um, years ago. Yeah, yeah, you, you're definitely right. I went to our village butcher the other day and he was like running around frantic. I said, what's up? And he was all stressed out because the the butcher down the road had closed and that like the day before, which meant that they had all the orders from the other butcher, which as he said to me, that sounds like a good problem to have, but because we're only small and we're kind of one of the only ones around here, we are struggling to keep on top of everything ourselves. Like as a small business, it's, there's a lot of red tape there and you know, a lack of people that want to kind of process the food. And 
as he was saying to me, he said, I started this 25 years ago. There used to be eight butchers just within a couple of miles. He said, now we're the only one. And again, a lot of it, a lot of it's down. And I, I any of the listeners, I, uh, I challenge you to, to, to check me out on this. A lot of the cost in a butcher's isn't actually any more expensive or, you know, definitely not much more expensive. But people just have the convenience of going to the supermarket now where you can do all your shopping in one go. So, yeah, if you do want to support local businesses and, you know, like I said on the thinking at 0.5 pence a burger, you know, maybe it's time to, you know, supermarkets have had a good ride but maybe it's time to start you know pushing back a bit and and providing uh for local businesses and local people i'm as guilty as anyone of uh yeah going for convenience and buying most of my food from the supermarket there is a, a very good organic butchers it's just a little bit further away for me to drive so it's more convenient to get some beef and some lamb from the supermarket. Um, however, I think what might motivate people is um, there are, seems to be some strange agendas going on um, globally <laughs> uh, with, with, with a view to what we should or shouldn't be eating um, as determined by uh, other people. Now, I'd rather have that choice myself and I think if you're one of those people that would like to be able to choose um, for yourself and doesn't really feel the need to follow the ideas of uh, an authority figure telling you what's good for you and what isn't without doing your own re- research, you might have to you might have to step out and make a bit more effort and support these smaller businesses now um, before they all do disappear. Absolutely, and this isn't. This isn't conspiracy theories. Like this is out there in clear daylight. I saw a, a UN report the other day, and they were saying that in 2030, they want the average person eating is something like 90% less meat. And you know, I'm sick and tired of hearing that this is all for the environment because you can that argument falls down like a pack of cards when you just do a bit of your own research fantastic book is sacred cow by rob wolf anyone want to read that but um what without getting too much into that it's like when you take a step back and think but why would they possibly want to do this well who produces all the meat it's largely is small farmers and like I said I see them I I visit a lot of farmers weekly and they are struggling and it all seems to be against them um, what are the alternatives to that well apparently all this um, like the plant-based stuff that's that's kind of the next the next thing to that will save the day but just have a think like who is able to produce that can a local farmer just produce a plant-based burger where it's got, you know, if you just have a look at the back of the ingredients, it's got a list the size of my arm. 
And but it's made of plants. I'm sure there's no environmental <laughs> cost to, to plants, is there? Can't be. I mean, so it's <laughs> heroin. good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, you just like, yeah, I think what I would say with a lot of the plant-based stuff is it needs to be built, it needs to be produced in a factory and it's coming from all different sources. Um, you know, the same as, you know, even your avocados, which come from Mexico or whatever. Um, meat in the UK, like I go to a lot of hilltop farms, you know, the, there are where you can't really grow anything else. Um, apart from grass, like you can't be growing vegetables, you can't be growing fruit. So that is, you know, the most efficient use of that land. Um, we talk about greenhouse gases, like, like I said, do your own research, like just cause some formal figure tells you that, you know, this is, this is an issue. Um, you know, animals are part of the solution. Um, and a little quick, interesting story I spoke to a farmer the other week and he's an old guy and he's got yeah small farm and he sells cattle and he was saying like I said it's in a really rugged area you can't do much else apart from grow grass and he was saying the story of his neighbor he was pointing pointing to the field next door he said over that fence um the the farmer who used to farm there um well his son owns it now um when it was world war Two, he said there was kind of um called initiative of, of by force that said that, that they came kind of the government came round to this farmer's place and they said um you know, this whole green revolution afterwards, this was you, we need everyone, yourself included, to be growing a certain amount of wheat. And it's like 10%, you've got to, you've got to rip up 10% of your land, of your grass and put it down to wheat. Um, and whether that's a good food source, I mean, you know, that's another thing, but, um, he was he knew his land better than anyone and you know he said this that's just not going to work like the best thing i can do is keep producing uh beef on it but they were adamant the government um they said no you need to put it rip it up put it down to wheat so this went back and forth for a while and it got to the point where the farmer really kind of lost his lost his cool and uh, the police ended up turning up at his house, um, you know, to, to issue him a sanction or whatever. And he got that frustrated that he went around with his shotgun and he shot the side of the car. He shot the side of the car. Um, now, they then went off and, you know, obviously that's not the right thing for you should have done. Um, they went off, but they came back, and this is where it gets shocking. The police came back and shot him dead. Um, and kind of my whole point on this, this little story is, there's been probably, it seems like, 
for me, there's been agendas against farmers small scale for a while. And, you know, perhaps it's still the same and it certainly seems that way, the way we're going. Yeah, I think um, it, it's interesting times. Uh, the, the why of these agendas is the confusing part to me. Perhaps it's just about profit that you can actually uh, make more profit from a manufactured plant-based meat alternative. Um, if, you're, if you're the person controlling that industry, uh, maybe there's more profit in it. It does seem like it's probably a small number of people um, who are thinking along these lines and are able to influence the conversation very effectively um, because they have the means, the experience um, through, through the media to influence how many people think. And if you get into conversations um, with people, the majority would, will, in, in my opinion, believe that um, beef is destroying the planet. Uh, it's responsible for global warming. Um, and th that's, that seems to be the prevailing narrative. I think this is a subject which we could discuss at length and maybe uh, we should do a follow-up uh, where we just just discuss this, dig into this subject uh, a little more because um, there's a lot of different ways to look at it, a lot of different angles. Um, we've covered quite a few things already. Um, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, and yeah, perhaps we should wrap up this conversation here and uh, set up a part two. Um, in the meantime, you mentioned a, a couple of times that you do uh, coach um, people with their health journey. Is there uh, any particular resource, uh, an Instagram, a website or something like that that you'd like to refer people to? Yeah, so I have got an Instagram page Alfresco Ancestral. Maybe, uh, yeah, that's the best place to find me on there. Um, I've only started it recently, but uh, yeah, that is the spot. Um, and yeah, no, it's it's been a great chat and it's, it's a very important one. Um, yeah, perhaps we could touch on more of the reasons next time, but um, a fantastic podcast I listened to recently was Dr. Anthony Chafee and he was in a in a conference in Australia and that delves into some of what look to be the reasons why you know there is this agenda against meat so yeah I would definitely recommend that great I'll try and find a link to that and uh, share that as well um, but yeah this has been a pleasure hopefully we can uh, do this again soon and uh, get into some of these issues about why why we're being told we shouldn't eat meat yeah absolutely i've got to ask before we go what you're having for tea <laughs> um, yeah it's probably not going to be um anything that exciting um midweek meal i'm probably just going to cook some beef mints and that might be all i have just some beef mints well simple and effective no i like that yeah how about yourself well, I've got a lovely lamb leg, which I've got in the oven going low and slow, straight from uh, that sounds good. Straight from the butchers. So, uh, yeah, I will be enjoying that. Yeah, enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Alex. Cheers, Imran.